Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. All right, we'd like to welcome Sam Brenner, a good friend of mine from Georgia, to talk about the recently released demographics results from the 2020 census and how they're going to impact the upcoming 2022 midterms and beyond. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Just to get us started here, as is tradition, how would you define yourself politically? Like, what would you describe as like political winnings? Um, so I definitely identify with the Democratic Party. Whenever someone kind of asked me to make my beliefs in regards to the party most simple, I would definitely say I lean much towards the Biden end and the Bernie end. That doesn't mean I agree with everything that the president has to say. I affiliate more with the moderate wing of the party. That's how I kind of view my beliefs. So we were talking about the census every 10 years. The census is supposed to show us what the American population looks like as mandated by the constitution. And mainly state governments use that data to decide representation in the House of Representatives that make up their own state legislatures and the level of federal support to their governments and and the local municipalities. So first question I have for you, what was like the main headline you took away from from this particular census? What jumped out at you that you think everyone needs to know, you know, what the hell just happened? So I think... Kind of the big thing that people really like to focus on with every time the census comes out is how America is changing racially. And this census, once again, kind of cemented the fact that America is getting more diverse. This census, they did change some ways about the ways they conducted the census, which a lot of experts think may have actually affected the fact that America's white population is shrinking according to the census, but that's also because, and I'm not quite sure how it works, I just know that they did change the format of the questions where people could identify slightly different racially and stuff like that. But again, the main headline is that America's minority demographics are growing um, in proportion to the population the white majority is shrinking. Um, That also depends on where it's happening. But I think one of the big headlines that we didn't know until after the results came out was the, I would say, expected undercount of minority voters, specifically Hispanic voters. They were widely expecting to have a systemic and serious undercount of Hispanic voters. And while we're still pretty sure that that happened, um, it wasn't as pronounced as many experts suggested, which is big news. Um, And some people might argue that the fact that minorities got slightly closer to accurate representation could bode well for the Democratic Party. But as we learned in 2020, that's not necessarily true. One thing that people have kind of always debated about the census is how we conduct it, because, you know, it's always been an actual count of people. And there's always kind of been debate since it's unbelievably unreliable, because You know, many people don't answer the census. Many people are hard to reach. If you think Native American communities in the West are often miles and miles apart, hard to find, might not have a government issued ID. People who might not have the financial means might not have the time to fill out the census. It's just, it's kind of problematic as a logistical operation. So there's still kind of this lingering question of how we conduct the census. So let's talk about that racial makeup. 
We're becoming increasingly a non-white country. What exactly does that look like? Is it mostly Hispanic plurality? Is it going to be just still a white plurality, but with a major Hispanic, Asian, and African-American multiracial um, of uh, counts? Well, first of all, um, I would say it's important to remember that white people are still, by and large, the largest demographic in the country. There are some states where that's no longer true, but there will it will be a long time before another single racial group um, becomes the plurality, just because like currently, according to the census, America is about 57% white. And again, you have to take those um, numbers with a grain of salt due to undercount of minorities, but it, it doesn't really go far in either direction. So it's going to be a long time before there's not no white plurality, but I it'll we're definitely only a few decades away from seeing a point where the majority of the country is for minority groups. But I don't think that it'll be any given minority group that overtakes white people as the plurality just because of the demographics of the United States. What we're seeing is that there are kind of shifting power dynamics based on that. For example, if you look at my home state of Georgia. Um, what the census found is that Georgia is 50.1% non-Hispanic white, which means that chances are Georgia has actually become a majority minority state. And you're already seeing kind of how the politics of that are shifting. We're seeing more representation for non-white people, even outside of um, political parties, because, you know, there's kind of this inherent, even as me, a, a Democrat will admit that it's it's wrong to conflate minorities exclusively with the Democratic Party. And we pretty much learned this lesson in the last election where the Democratic Party had some serious losses with minority groups across the board. But what we are seeing is more minority candidates becoming successful and having their voices amplified. It's, it's just shifting demographics. Do you think there's any correlation uh, between the racial aspect and the fact that rural communities very much declined over the course of the past decade, as shown by the census, and that um, certain states like Florida and Texas are gaining a lot more uh, house seats. Or can you draw a direct line between those, or is it, or is it still rather circumstantial? So there's a lot kind of in that question there because there's a lot to break down. Basically, people are moving out of rural areas in this country largely because, as the United States becomes more and more of kind of a, a trading nation that engages with the world more, that's going to negatively affect kind of the jobs that would mainly exist in rural areas. And again, no statement goes for everything, but we're generally becoming a more highly educated tech-focused country. And those jobs are in the city. So people, we're becoming more educated as a country and that's across the board. That's across pretty much every racial group is becoming more educated getting becoming more financially successful, those jobs tend to be in the cities. I would say that kind of the Florida and Texas thing is a little different. You know, there's definitely finances and space at play um, because the millennial generation is just now getting to the point where they're becoming slightly more financially stable. I mean, you know, there's a whole discussion about how the millennial generation may never be as financially successful as the generations before. Um, but that's a discussion for a different time. But as people are kind of growing up and starting to invest in property and stuff, there's just, there's no more space in kind of these big, big metropolitan areas like New York, LA, San Francisco. And, you know, a lot of people want to conflate that with politics. And 
I don't really want to get into that discussion because, you know, that's kind of a rabbit hole. But in, in states like Florida and Texas, it's, because, it's easy to buy a large amount of property and not spend all that much. And cities in Florida and Texas are becoming larger and in their own right, their financial hubs. Like if you kind of look at Dallas is exploding, Houston, Miami, Orlando, Tampa. So I think those are kind of two separate things. But yeah, people are moving out of rural areas in general because I think of opportunities, because we're becoming a country that more and more consumes instead of produces. So the opportunities aren't going to be kind of in farm country. And again, no statement goes for all. There are, de- there are rural areas around the country that actually are growing, but there's you know different reasons at play for that. So when we look at what states are going to lose representation, are going to lose a lot of population, it's usual suspects of the Rust Belt states, even New York. Is there anything else the census really adds to the conversation that we've been having for the past five years, five, six, seven years now in the age of populism is you know, connected to the dying manufacturing industry and, and you know, the collapse of Detroit, the collapse of the auto sector. You know, is there anything the census really added to that conversation or is it just confirming what we already knew? Well, if for by, by and large, it confirmed what we already knew. A lot of experts pretty much knew where the representation was changing. Um, there were already preliminary estimates of who was going to gain and lose representation as far back as four or five years ago that made little change in the time being. And there was definitely some extraneous factors in when the census was um, completed in 2020, number one being COVID, which actually, believe it or not, did change the results of the census. Um, because if you look at the state of Minnesota, they were actually supposed to lose um, one of their congressional districts. They were like right on the border between losing one and keeping all of their districts. Based on population, they were only a few hundred people away. And if they lost one, it would have gone to New York because they were the the closest state on the other side that lost one. And if you actually look at, this is kind of a little bit of nerdy numbers, but if you look at the amount of people in New York that died of COVID compared to Minnesota, it actually could have saved New York's congressional district, which New York is actually a state where partisan gerrymandering is allowed on behalf of the ruling party. So it could have been another district that Democrats would have been able to keep. Um, whereas Minnesota actually has split control. So while there's no um, nonpartisan commission, the map is likely to be a fair one because the parties have to agree. Again, there were small changes, but the overall story is that it confirmed everything that we knew about the fact that people are moving out of more industrial regions of the country because we are becoming a more tech-focused country. That's kind of the general idea that this census confirmed. Just a side note, I think it was what, less than 100 people that didn't answer the census that made New York lose its seat. And you're right that Minnesota almost lost it. But I don't, I, I, I think I read that the, that the Census Bureau said that they weren't counting uh, COVID deaths in the official count. Well, I don't think that they were counting COVID deaths as people because like they, they had passed. Well, because this is actually where the census can get kind of messy is because it's so not precise and it can make such a world of difference where like people have come up with legitimate, or at least in my opinion, legitimate 
alternatives to the census. Like for example, one um, idea that gained steam in the late nineties and early two thousands that never really came to be is um, replacing the full count with modeling, which is essentially a much more precise form of polling where you use mathematical models to determine the rough estimates of populations, um, which could have actually been much more precise for the, the census. But again, we've been doing this form of census since, since it was enshrined in the constitution. So it's pretty hard to change. So you touched on the uh, redistricting, gerrymandering. Let's not get to the main event. As I said before, Florida and Texas are, the, are some of the bigger winners of this. Oregon is gaining a seat. North Carolina is gaining a seat. Of those I mentioned, three of those are more leaning Republican right now, although the Republican state of West Virginia has lost a seat. And uh, a lot of these Rust Belt states and New York lean a little more Democratic, especially in the last election. What what are you thinking now that the game the game is on? What, you know, there's state these states have wildly different ways of actually creating the districts. And um, on the left, the alarm bells about gerrymandering have been ringing for years now. What's your, what's your mindset about this? To a large extent, I think Democrats have largely shot themselves in the foot because the party is very focused on being the moral party. That's kind of how they've operated for the past decade or so, which is great when you're going for looking at like the moral party to the voters, but it's not how you win elections. Like we know that elections in America are very cutthroat. You have to do whatever you have to do to get ahead and win. So Democrats, in order to kind of prove a point, gave a, gave up a lot of their redistricting power in some pretty important states to nonpartisan commissions, which are great because that allows districts to be drawn based on community of interest rather than political standing. But the problem is states run by Republicans didn't do the same because they know that they can gain a political edge from gerrymandering. And in order to be able to change the rules, you have to be in power, which is something that's proved difficult when Democrats are giving up their own ability to win by drawing partisan maps. But Democrats don't haven't relinquished all of their power. The big story has kind of been Texas and Florida because they have Republican control and are able to draw a lot of seats that could help Republicans. It should be mentioned that there are some pretty big power players in blue states that have the opportunity to do the same. For example, Illinois has a lot of seats and they have an entirely Democratic controlled legislature. They'll be able to draw a very favorable map where Democrats will pick up a number of seats. Same thing goes for New York, which is looking more and more like it's actually going to be a goldmine for Democrats in the next midterms because their map has act was actually drawn pretty fairly in the past election cycle. And now that you know they have to counter some of the forces in other states, um, they're going to be able to draw more favorable maps. Same thing for Maryland. They'll only be able to destroy the one existing Republican district, but it's another district that Democrats are going to pick up. But there's more forces at play when it comes to gerrymandering because you have to be careful about how much you do it. There's a balance that comes to it. So when you're drawing gerrymandered maps, you're taking turf of the other party and putting it into putting it with foreign territory to create a congressional district. But in order to preserve that district for a long period of time, you have to kind of be careful about how you're drawing these lines. So the best example is Georgia, uh, my home state, where 10 years ago, 
they drew a very partisan map that was not reflective of the state's communities of interest. But the problem was they took a lot of territory that would grow a lot over the past 10 years and put them in with Republican territory that got it to the point where the maps actually became fairly unfavorable for Republicans because the growth in Atlanta was so great that they put too much territory from the city of Atlanta into some gerrymandered districts. So when you're drawing a partisan map, you do have to allot the other party a good amount of seats to ensure that your incumbents are safe. So that's actually going to be one break that a lot of these states, especially Texas, which is rapidly um, shifting towards Democrats, Texas Republicans have to keep in mind how long they could potentially hold on to these seats. So they are going to have to cede some territory to Democrats. Is there anything a Democrat saying, we're going to keep being the moral party because we're, we're advocating for a bill that's going to end gerrymandering, you know, HR1 or For the People Act, whatever the, whatever the heck it's called. You know, Illinois, aren't, aren't they going to take out Adam Kinzinger's seat? Um, they are going to take out Adam Kinzinger's seat, but that is actually not as much due to gerrymandering as much as it is that his district is one of the fastest shrinking in the state. So it was likely to be carved up no matter what happened. The main Republican that they're going to go after in Illinois is a representative named Rodney Davis, who represents a southern part of the state that was actually drawn to favor Democrats 10 years ago, but became much more conservative. Um, so he's actually the Republican that they're going to go after. Kinzinger was likely to lose his seat anyway. But I mean, they are going to draw these maps because if they aren't able, I mean, at least Democrats are fighting for this bill, if you know what I mean. Like if they are out of the majority in the House and there's no chance that HR1 ever happens, because I think a lot of these partisan maps that you're going to see from Democrats aren't necessarily meant to be long-term solutions. They're meant to be means to an end of ending gerrymandering across the country. Because don't forget, HR1 would also go after New York and would also go after Illinois for unfair maps because it, it sets a strict amount of guidelines for gerrymandering that both of these states are absolutely not going to adhere to. I think that one thing that these states are doing is the maps are much more of a means to an end. What other states should we be watching for how they cover up their districts? You know, even states that didn't gain a lose representative, you know, they're going to have to redraw their maps. You know, yeah, so this is actually like a really big hot take for me because, you know, the news really wants to focus on like the big culturally significant states like Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois. Like those are big states and they have a lot of seats to carve up. And that's great. But first of all, if you look at these states, the seats are only going to change in very small numbers each direction. New York, Democrats will probably pick up two or three seats. Illinois, it'll be one. Texas Republicans will probably pick up one or two seats. Florida, same thing. But where the majority is going to be won or lost is actually going to be in these small states that also have partisan power over redistricting. So if you want to make a list of states to watch, I'll give them to you right now. And that's going to be Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, Missouri, Nebraska. And those are all that are top of mind right now. But those, oh yeah, those are the main ones because- Those are Republican, those, right? Those, all of them, even Kansas, even Kansas with Democratic governor, Kentucky with Democratic governor, it's in the hands of state legislatures. Yes, because yeah, right. both states, Republicans hold a super majority. Um, so they are able to veto the governor. But the reason that I mentioned those states is because all those states have a seat um, that could be reasonably carved up and made into very Republican turf. So 
example for Kentucky, there's a Democrat that represents Louisville named John Yarmouth. The rest of Kentucky is so red, you could easily draw very safe Republican districts that crack up the city and not have not ever worry about any of them flipping because of how red the rest of the state is. Same goes for Tennessee. The city of Nashville could be carved up. Kansas City, Missouri can be carved up. Those are where the majorities are going to be won and lost because those small seats, it's only one or two per state, but it adds up. Yes, you know, focusing on Texas and Florida is a big deal, but that Democrats could still easily lose their majority from these small states. Even if you go after Texas and you go after Florida and you spend billions of billions of dollars in a lawsuit, you're, you could still end up out of the majority because first of all, you're not guaranteed to win Texas or Florida. And two, it's, it's kind of a, a gauntlet across the country to fight this gerrymandering because a lot of these districts um, don't have any legal protections. Like there are districts in the South um, or in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia that are protected by the Voting Rights Act because they're black majority districts. So those are still safe for Democrats because they're very Democratic seats. But these other seats in these very red states are not protected by the VRA. A big one that people are kind of talking about is Nebraska, because as you know, Nebraska, not only they have three congressional districts, but they allocate their electoral votes by congressional district. So that could potentially put either President Biden or the Democratic nominee in 2024 out of an electoral vote, which if it's a close election could be decisive. So that that's where the majority is going to be won or lost, in my opinion. And I think I feel like the news media should definitely cover those states more. Are there any Democratic states to watch? Like, is there any Democratic equivalent of Kentucky So Democrats have largely relinquished their ability in their small states, but some states that definitely I I would be watching is New Mexico because that has Democratic partisan control and Democrats do actually um, could mathematically gain the one Republican seat that's in the southern part of the state. I'd watch Nevada because they have partisan control. And while Nevada Democrats aren't likely to pick up any seats, they actually have two very vulnerable seats that they'll be able to redraw very favorably. Oregon is also one to watch that's a little trickier because the Democrats in the state legislature have made certain agreements with Republicans to draw fairer maps. And California is one to watch too because their commission is actually um, fairly stacked with Democrats. And while they're not likely to draw an outrageous map, Democrats could certainly pick up a seat or as you know, California is going to lose a seat. So that one loss could be among the Republican delegation. Those are kind of the main ones to watch. But again, most Democratic states have commissions where they could really actually do some serious damage, like Colorado, Virginia are two states that trended very heavily for um, Biden in the last election. And Democrats could do some serious damage there, but they have commissions and are likely to draw fairer maps. When you look at all these states you mentioned, you said some parts of the Voting Rights Act are still applying to states like Alabama, Mississippi, Deep South. How is the racial makeup of the country, how is that going to affect Democrats and Republicans, you know, mindset going into redistricting? Well, so I don't know how much the kind of changing racial demographics of the country are going to affect the new maps and stuff. But one thing I definitely will say is that the Voting Rights Act can be somewhat of a double-edged sword for Democrats because it forces Republicans to draw these majority minority districts, but it also allows them to legally pack all these minority voters into 
one district. So what you end up with, specifically the most egregious ones being in Alabama and South Carolina, where you have Black voters who are actually more spread out across the state being packed into one very non-compact district, when you could easily make in Alabama, for example, an, a district that's still overwhelmingly Black that represents a series of majority minority counties in the central part of the state and a separate Democratic district for the city of Birmingham, which is much more racially diverse. It's not majority Black, but because Republicans can also use the VRA to their advantage, they take just the Black voters in Birmingham and pack them in with other Black voters in the southern part of the state. And you end up with kind of a, an ugly looking district that puts all the Black voters in the state into one. When realistically, when you adhere to community of interest, there should really be an overwhelmingly Black district in the South and a city of Birmingham district in the North. Um, South Carolina is kind of another example of that, where al along the entire central part of the state, there is a series of majority Black cities. And there's also the, the city of Columbia, which is also overwhelmingly Black, should really be in two separate districts, but um, based on community of interest, because these kind of majority Black districts in the more rural part of the state are very culturally distinct from the city of Columbia because it's more rural versus a more urban and suburban setting. But they all get like almost with precision, they draw lines around the black majority areas of each city and pack them into one district. It'll be interesting to see if these minority populations continue to grow, that could potentially bleed over into more, more conservative districts. But again, these districts are drawn with like surgical precision because they don't want a VRA lawsuit. So again, it's kind of a double-edged sword for Democrats. So we've been talking about some of the most, what you, what you call cutthroat aspects of American politics. You know, if you, know, if you could just wave a magic wand, everything could be fixed in the way you want, what, what would you do? Is part of that question, like how would I kind of change the procedures of Congress to make it more fair or just specifically gerrymandering? And we'll ask how we do representation in general in this country, you know, congressional representation in general, and not to mention, not to mention the state legislatures, but, you know, how we take the census information, draw the boundaries. Do we implement what is in the For the People Act and ban, you know, try to ban gerrymandering? Do we just expand number of seats in Congress? Like, what, what would you say is, well, you know, a solution? First of all, I think the most reasonable thing that Democrats can do right now is just take the For the People Act off the table because there are some like legitimate concerns about the act because it takes very reasonable legislation like banning partisan gerrymandering and stuff like that and also puts it in the same bill that kind of bans a lot of private money in politics and allows for publicly funded elections, which is very much kind of a point of contention because, you know, there are people who have legitimate concerns about not wanting to pay to support candidates that they don't like because that's kind of a, a problematic aspect of publicly funded elections, or at least in my opinion. And what Democrats should do is just pass a national standard for what districts can look like so that when districts are taken to court, it's much simpler to determine what is and is not a gerrymander. What you really want to be looking at with gerrymanders is, are they keeping metro areas together? Are they keeping culturally similar parts of states together? I think that you could def you wouldn't get the whole Republican um, congressional delegation on board with that, but you could certainly get a lot of more moderate Republicans on board with that who want to see more fair representation, in my opinion. And that's going to be your 
Murkowski's, your Collins, your Romney's, your, your Portman's, although he won't be around for much longer. Honestly, you could probably even get um, your McConnell's, although that might be more difficult. So you would definitely see kind of these more institutional members of Congress get on board. If you just went after gerrymandering specifically um, and didn't try to make it this whole omnibus, but zooming out to kind of how we make representation more fair in general. I personally am a big fan of the mixed member proportional kind of style of legislature that countries, the two I can immediately think of are New Zealand and Germany use, where it kind of allows for the best of both worlds. And basically the way it works is that you have half of any given legislature is elected by district as you would in the House of Representatives or in parliament. And then the other half would be people that are elected on a national list. So basically the way that works is on your ballot, you vote for your local candidate for the district, and then you also vote for a party um, nationally. And then those parties get allocated a given amount of seats based on their performance in the vote. And they get to choose who gets to represent those, those seats, even though, because those are national list seats. So basically that works great because one, people can choose members that they feel represent them, and two, they can feel they can choose the party that they think that the that fits the national environment the most. So that could work great if you are a person who may be more culturally liberal, but you really like your moderate Republican representative, but you'd like to see Democrats in control of the country, then you can have the best of both worlds. You can vote for your Republican representative and still vote to help preserve a Democratic majority. And the same works vice versa. If you're a moderate Republican, you'd like to see Republicans in control of the country, but you really like your Democratic representative, you can do that. And that way, the will of the people in both ways are represented. I'm glad you brought that up. I agree that we need to implement that in some form. So that's all the questions I have. You know, is there anything else you want our listeners to know? If you're interested in kind of looking for more resources, I highly recommend both the um, 538 redistricting model. It's like one of the first things that they'll show you if you pull up on their page and that's 538 in words. So F-I-V-T-H-R-I-R-T-Y-E-I-G-H-T.com. And right now there isn't much because they're only showing the states that only have one district because no maps have been released at the time. But once the maps start to come out, they will provide kind of partisan data for those maps. So you'll see kind of which party is winning the battle for Congress, even before the single vote is cast. And also Dave Wasserman, who is the chief editor for the Cook Political Report, um, has a Twitter account that I've always found really helpful because he provides a lot of really good information about different ways that districts can be drawn and stuff. And the way um, and he provides like a very detailed analysis of the census data and stuff. So those are two phenomenal resources. And if you have a subscription to the Cook Political Report, even better. But um, his Twitter is also like perfectly works for the information that you'll need. I'll make sure to link them in the description. Um, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. We hope to have you back. Thank you. I'd love to be back. that concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly, with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>